I'm pulling out my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay. So the last three podcasts, I've been talking all about legions. And so today I will continue. In fact, the plan is today's the last day since I'm up to S. Although I have a decent amount to talk about being that I'm up to S. But okay, last time I ended with Scion of Darkness. So this time I'm picking up with Seedborn Muse. A very popular uh, card from this. So Seedborn Muse is one of the Muse cycle. It's a rare, the rare cycle of spirits that all had um, enchantment-like effects on them. So Seedborn Muse is three green green, five mana total for a 2-4 spirit uh, that you get to untap your permanence during your opponent's, un- uh, during other players' untap steps. So this was a rejigger of a card called Awakening from Stronghold. Um, Awakening just untapped your creatures and lands during other people's upkeeps, uh, or untaps. Uh, this one does all permanent, so it also has your artifacts and enchantments if somehow they got tapped. Um, really, I guess artifacts is the main thing there. Uh, this was a very popular card. Um, the muses in general were added because, um, because it was all creatures, we wanted to make sure that there were... We wanted to make sure that we were mimicking other elements of cards. And so the muses were stuck in, um, definitely to have things to build around and have, you know, an enchantment sensibility on some of the cards. Uh, like I've mentioned before, they were pretty popular. The muses were definitely one of the big hits. Uh, and a lot of them saw play. Seaborn Muse for sure saw play. Uh, but a lot of them definitely saw, saw some, some constructed play. Next, Skin Thinner. So Skin Thinner is a, a one and a black, two mana, two one zombie. Uh, and then for more three black black, you got to tear something. So tear means you destroy target creature, target non-black creature, non-artifact, non-black creature, um, and it cannot be regenerated. Uh, what we use called berry. So real quick, quick, a little, little side here. So um, every once in a while, we create terminology and realize we don't need it. So a while back, when, when uh, Richard Garfield first made uh, the game, he made Terror. So Terror, yeah, Terror, the idea of Terror was it scares you to death. And so, but it didn't work on black creatures and it didn't work on artifact creatures, the, the flavor of which black creatures, they're used to scary things. And artifact creatures, they don't have a lot of emotions all, all that, that much. And so they're, they're, you know, you can't scare, can't scare a golem to death. Um, uh, so, and then... It had a rider on it that kept you from regenerating if uh, target creature could not regenerate. Uh, and for a while, a lot of our kill spells had that little rider of target creature cannot regenerate. Um, I think Terror had that on it. I know most of early Magic, the kill spells had it on it. Um, and at some point, we realized that. Well, so what happened was it got ridden out so much that they decided. Oh, why don't we just shorthand it and put a vocabulary word? So instead of having to say, destroy target creature, that creature can't be regenerated, it got changed to bury target creature. Bury is in put in the ground, B-U-R-Y. Um, but eventually what we realized is, A, that we were kind of just hosing regeneration for no great you know, reason. Like, the whole point of regeneration is to survive things, like perhaps kill spells. So we stopped putting that writer on and said, you know what? Destroy target creature. You can regenerate. Well, that's one of the things. That's one of the answers to, to, to you know, terror-like effects is regeneration. Uh, so when we stop doing that, we're like, oh, well, since we're not really saying you can't regenerate, we don't need berry anymore, and we stop using berry. The weird thing is that players to this day still bug me to bring berry back, even though we don't functionally do what the word berry did. I don't know if they just love the word or something, um, or just not 
Maybe people don't realize exactly one for one what the word meant. Um, but the reason we don't use bury is we don't stop, mostly we don't stop regeneration anymore. Uh, kill spells are one of their weaknesses is if, if you have mana for regeneration. Uh, and the reason we didn't feel we needed to host regeneration is regeneration already has a mana cost, meaning there are already moments down where if they can't pay to regenerate, you could kill them then, and then you can get by it. So because regeneration had the mana to activate it, look, it had a weakness. There's windows where it was down that we just didn't need to hose it on every spell. And there was a period, really, where we hosed all, all sorts of spells. Um, okay. Uh, back to Skin Thinner. So Skin Thinner is very interesting in that um, it shows kind of one of the neat things about Morph. So the idea was it's a 2-1 zombie. So when it's face down as a Morph, it's actually more powerful than it is face up. I mean, it is a zombie. Uh, one of the things that was neat, one of the reasons that putting Morph in the same set as a tribal set actually worked out interestingly is sometimes the reason you were to Morph something um, was because you needed the creature type. Um, like, there's definitely times where... Like, for example, there's times with Skin Thinner... Oh, well, Skin Thinner usually plays face down because killing something is so important and limited. But um, there are definitely cards where you sometimes would play them face up because the need to get the creature type was important enough or you would, you know, turn them face up was important enough because you needed to be able to count them. Um, and the fact that this was a zombie, there, there definitely was some zombie effects that helped you get zombies back from the graveyard. Well, this was an awesome card to get back from the graveyard. It's a kill spell. Um, the other thing that's very interesting is... and. Um, this is a good ex- examination of this, is how Morph provides... I, I keep talking about how a lot of cards are kind of split cards in some way, and this card kind of is a split card, um, in that it can do a couple different things. For two mana, for one B, it's a 2-1 zombie. Now, most of the time, I mean, if you're trying to beat someone down early with the deck, maybe it's something you would consider, um, especially if you, have, if you have the ability to get back zombies. Now, for three mana, it's a t- colorless 2-2 creature. You know, and for five mana, you know, if you put play the two two five mana, it can turn into a terror effect. That, and then essentially what it does is it makes it from a two two colorless creature to a two one zombie at the and you get a terror for five mana. Um, and it's a good example of there's a lot of different play that comes out of skin thinner and knowing what you do and how to use it best. And you know, it, it, morph is definitely. I mean, people are seeing that now in Concept Arcade and that morph is an interesting mechanic. There's a lot of neat decisions that go into it. Um, the other thing, by the way, that people, uh, one of the big arguments we have is, um, aren't morphs, you know, because morphs are, in R&D terminology, what we call gray ogres. So uh, in early alpha, or early alpha, in alpha, um, uh, Richard made a card called gray ogre, which was two and a red, so three mana for a two-two creature, uh, an ogre, obviously. Um, and a, that is not a particularly good creature in a vacuum. Uh, you know, a gray ogre, like a grizzly bear is two mana for a 2-2, in R&D speak. And a gray ogre is three mana for a 2-2. Well, clearly, two mana for a 2-2 is much more efficient than three mana for a 2-2. Um, and when I finally end up doing the Kinds of Tarkir uh, podcast, um, there's a big, big story about us messing around with Morph, and we actually tried doing Morph uh, for two mana rather than three mana. But anyway, story for another day. Um, but the interesting thing is, one of the big arguments uh, people bring up is, well, isn't Morph kind of outclassed? Isn't a Grey Ogre a weak? And what I say is, is that Morph actually is, is, has something that a Grey Ogre does not. And what that is, is a Grey Ogre is a 2-2. You know what that is. Under no circumstances do you have to do any math to reevaluate anything about it. It's a 2-2. Where a Morph creature has potential. 
especially if you have a bunch of man open, especially if you have five or more man open in, in cons. Um, so when you play a 2-2, even, for example, let's say I play a face-down 2-2 of a, a color I can't even turn up. I can't turn it up, okay? Even that is more powerful than a gray ogre because although you know it's nothing but a 2-2, your opponent doesn't, and they have to act as if it might be something. So, for example, if you have five mana open and you have a 2-2, even if you know you can't turn it up, it, it, for all intents and purposes, for you, it's a gray ogre. For your opponent, because they don't know, they might not block it. When, you, know, you can bluff with it. You, know, you can't bluff with a gray ogre. I mean, you can. You can pretend you have a giant growth or something, but it, it's much, much easier to bluff with a morph creature. Um, and part of what morph brings with it is the sense of mystery, and that not knowing what it is really is unnerving to the other player, and that... Um, there is value in it being face down. And that's why sometimes when you're filling out stuff in draft, occasionally people will put an off-color morph in just because they need the extra creature. And if you have a few morph creatures, meaning your opponent truly... You have some true threats that are morph creatures, it allows you to put in an off-color to every once in a while with your opponent, you know, having to act like it's one of your other morphs. Anyway, oh, a bunch of morph... Uh, <laughs> More than you ever wanted to know about Morph. Okay. One, one of these days, by the way, maybe one of these days I'll do a podcast on Morph. Morph, morph is a very fascinating uh, thing. Okay, next. Skirk Alarmist. So Skirk Alarmist costs one and a red, two mana total, for a 1-2 wizard. It has haste and tap, turn face down card face up, and then sacrifice it at end of turn. So uh, this is playing in a space that Red has moved a little bit away from that I'd like to move back, actually, which is the idea of getting effects but getting them temporarily. Um, Red has always done this, and this kind of, this kind of ebb and flowed. You know, Red definitely has you know, things where I, I throw you and you gain flying, but then you hit the ground and you're dead. Uh, and so the idea of I sort of get value, but I get value immediately and right now. Um, so the idea of this card is I can play it with morph cards. Essentially what it does is it turns for free or, you know, tap this creature, you essentially get the morph cost. It turns the face up. You don't have to pay the morph cost. Uh, the downside is that you lose the creature at the end of the turn, but for a lot of morph creatures, the spell is the crux of what it's doing anyway, you know, that it's... The, the creature that remains is nothing special, and that it's the cost of the... You know, it's the morph effect that really is the value of the card. Um, and so this card allows you to... Um, get that. It also allows you to pay off-color morphs in a deck that not, can't necessarily even play them upright. Um, now, and that's dangerous because they get trapped in your hand, but, but it, it, the, the card does allow you to do some neat things, especially in Limited, where you're more likely to run off-color morphs. Okay. Um, Skirk Marauder. So Skirk Marauder is one and a red, two mana, for a 2-1 Goblin, uh, and for two our morph, you get to shock something. You get to do two damage to target creature or player. This is like Skin Thinner. This was a, this actually... Um, so what happened when Onslaught came out was um, a few of the tribes really, really took off. Uh, the two biggest, I believe, were Goblins and Elves. Um, in fact, both Goblins and Elves still show up in Modern in that the power of Onslaught... Um, actually, Onslaught... Take that back. Onslaught's not in Modern. Um, uh, maybe I'm thinking of Legacy. Um, but... Uh, the goblins in the set were really, really good, and this uh, this card actually saw a tournament play. Um, and once again, it's one of those things where sometimes you just want a you want a goblin, one R two one goblin, and a deck that cares about goblins is fine. The fact that I can turn this into um, a shock for not that much man two two R you know three man is not really being that I still get the creature out of it. I mean my two two becomes a two one. 
but a two-one goblin, which in the in the deck that I was running, those goblins are mighty mighty important. Um, but and th- like I said, it's the thing about morph that's very interesting to me is. Once you understand morph, and morph is complex, so make no mistake, I'm not saying that morph isn't a complex mechanic, but once you get the basics of it, um, something like a card like this is a pretty simple card, you know, given the context of you understand morph, uh, but it has a lot of neat and interesting play value. There's a lot of things you can do, you know. The fact that this creature, for example, can take out a four-toughness creature all on its own, you know, or you can do a lot of combo tricks where, you know, you're chumping one thing and using its damage to help kill something else, and there's a lot of neat things you can do with this card. Okay, next, Skirk Outrider. Skirk Outrider is a four-mana card, three and a red, for a 2-2 goblin, and it gets plus two, plus two, and trample if you control a beast. So this is what I've referred to as a threshold one card. Um, the idea, what a threshold one card means is I need you to have something, but just, you only need one of it. As long as you have one of it, you're good. Um, uh, account me is something, I've talked about this in previous podcasts, and previous uh, Legion's comment. So count me is, is when I get an effect based on how many I have. So I want to, if I have a count me in my deck, you know, if I'm doing damage equal to the number of, you know, goblins I have, oh, well, I, I want every goblin I can get my hand on. I'll play goblins that are suboptimal goblins because I want every goblin I can get. If I have a threshold thing, what I want is I need enough that I can make it matter. And this card's a good example where four mana for a 2-2, two, two, nothing special. Four mana for a 4-4 four, four trampler is pretty special. It's pretty good. That's a good, that is a good value proposition. But in order for that to happen, you need to have a beast. So, let's talk, there's another little theme that goes on in uh, this block. Is cross-tribal stuff. Now, we did it a little bit here. You would see it a lot more in Lorwyn when we went back to tribal. And what that means is, we try to make a few cards that say, hey, this card, uh, this card might say to you, hey, Rather than just make a goblin deck or just make a beast deck, you have the possibility of maybe making a goblin beast deck. That you could have some cards that care about goblins and some cards that care about beasts and go in the same deck. Um, so we, we, we call those crossover cards, where the idea is uh, a crossover card is when you take something that fits in two different decks and position them so there's a possibility that the two decks can merge and be played together. Um, usually those go at uncommon because you want them to be powerful enough that they're worth the risk. Um, and it's the kind of thing that if you get early, it can sort of affect how you draft. But you don't want it too lo- low because... Um, I mean, actually, I don't know if this is a common or uncommon, but no- nowadays we tend to cross over to uncommon uh, just for drafting. It's, it's a better situation when they sit. Every once in a while we'll do them in common, depending on how big the themes are. Next, Spokes Spew Inv- Invoker. So Tuna Black for 3-1, so 3 mana for 3-1, Zombie Mutant. I believe all the, all the Invokers were mutants. Um, and then for 7 and a black for 8 mana, target creature gets minus 3, minus 3 until end of turn. So for 8 mana, you get to start killing things. So, so this is another one of the Invokers. In fact, uh, the one right after this. Let me, let me bring up that one too, and I'll talk about both Invokers at the same time. So Stonewood Invoker was 1 and a green for a 2-2 Elf Mutant. For 7 and a green, card name gets plus plus 5, plus 5 to end of turn. Okay, so let's look at these cards. One of them is a 2B3-1, one, one of them is a 1G2-2. Two, two. Both of those cards are playable and limited. Um, neither is an amazing card, but, but more, I mean, if those were vanilla creatures, you would often play them in limited. Not always. I'm not saying they're near the top of your deck, 
Um, but they're the kind of thing that, you know, push comes to shove, it's like, okay. Especially, by the way, since one is a zombie, one is an elf. That not only are, are they creatures that are, you know, you would probably run anyway, but the fact that they are the right creature type means you're more than likely to run them. You know, if I'm running a deck that cares about elves, I'm going to play a grizzly bear elf. You know, a 2-2 elf. Um, now people go, ooh, grizzly bear elf. It's like a little elf, little bear with a little... Uh, <laughs> Little uh, pointed ears. Okay, so the black one, I have a 3-1. At 8 mana, I get to start killing creatures. You know, no matter minus they won't kill everything, but it kills a lot of things, and odds are once you get 8 mana, you're going to be killing things. Stone Invoker, when you get 8 mana, goes from being a 2-2 to being a 7-7. Now remember, it only grows itself. It becomes a 7-7. Now, both of those are pretty potent, you know, when you get to later in the game, so you need eight mana, so that's, we're talking pr- pretty late in the game, um, you all of a sudden take a card that was a eh, okay common that you'd most likely play and turn it into, you know, a game changer. It's something that really will start affecting the game. And so invokers do this neat thing where they, they get to be kind of simple creatures early and only in the late game do they turn into something. So I talk a lot about lenticular design about how you want things that seem simple to players. And this is not quite lenticular, because the, the second you know, version of the card is sitting on the card. Um, but it is something where, because it's such a high thing, the way your brain can kind of shut off till you get close to it. You know, for eight men, I can do this. Well, until I start getting to six, I'm not really even worrying about it, you know. Um, I mean, maybe you do a little bit of math when you're figuring out whether to block with it or not, going, oh, if I can easily throw away something of equal value, maybe I save this because later in the game it's so valuable. Um, but pretty much, you tend to treat, it as, there are, it's a 3-1 and a 2-2 vanilla that, you know, in the early part of the game, that you treat like you would treat any card you would. And then later in the game, when you get, start getting close, you're like, okay, now i got to start protecting this. This is valuable. But it's not valuable until late in the game. So early in the game, you kind of can just treat it like, it was just a vanilla version of that card. Um, invokers have become very popular. Um, they're a really good tool developmentally because um, one of the things we want to make sure... So one of the things about magic is that um, the, the mana system is set up that it can punish you uh, from time to time. And one of the things we want to do is we want to allow people to do some things to offset the mana. Um, I think the mana system is very important. It's one of my... what I consider the three genius ideas of Richard. But... One of the things about the game is, because the game is flexible and you get to control things, we do want to give you tools to lessen Mana Screw. Mana Screw is an unnecessary byproduct. It's not that we want people to get Mana Screwed. I do want people to not always have the mana they need. I do want your, uh, your flow of mana to be inconsistent so you don't quite know what's going to happen. I believe that makes a better game state. And, you know, one of the problems about games like... The, for example, I worked on one, uh, Duel Masters, where we try to fix the mana system. And the problem there is, when you know the turn one you have a one drop, and you know the turn two you have two drop, and you know the turn three you have a three drop, uh, it, it takes a lot of the drama away. And that one of the things that Magic is going for it is, you know, while it might be frustrating when you're stuck at two and you want to draw your third, you know, or you're stuck at three, want to draw your fourth, the, the things you do to try to survive and try to make, make it work until you get what you need is a lot of the most interesting parts of magic of scratching to get by and trying to figure out what you can do. 
You know, I've had some amazing games where I got stuck at three and, like, I cast all the stuff I could cast, and I, you know, and I, I knew that if I could get to four that I had a different gameplay, and so a lot of what I did is I had to adapt to figure out how to get to four, because once I get to four, I could do some things that I needed to do, and I needed to survive to get there, and so I, I changed my play so that could happen, and that's one of the dynamic parts of Magic. Um, the invokers are really nice because they allow... One, one of the things that we like... Uh, development really likes and design works hard to make sure it gets in sets is things to do with extra mana that one of the things we want to do is we want to say to players it's okay to sort of um, err on the side of having enough mana so that you know later in the game when you have a, uh, excess of mana we will give you some things to do with it that it's okay that you have excess of mana and sometimes it's stuff like invoker sometimes it's you know mechanics like kicker you know, we just want to make sure there's things to do with extra mana so that you can play the mana and not be punished by having too much mana, you know, all, too much of the time. Okay, next, Sunstrike Legionnaire. So one and a white, two mana for a one-two soldier. It doesn't untap. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield, you get to untap it and tap target creature with, with converted mana cost three or less. Okay, a lot going on here. But the, so basically the card is, is I tap small things, but... I don't get to untap normally. I only get to untap when the creature is played. So what that means is um, that I, I, the card kind of says every time you play a creature, the little rider is you get to tap a small creature. That every creature spell, and not just, sorry, not, not, when I say every creature spell, I don't mean your creature spells. I also mean your opponent's creature spells. Um, and so this is one of those cards... For, for players that were fans of things that affected everything, this is the kind of card that was interesting when that happened. Because your opponent had this decision about, oh, when I play a creature, one of my creatures is going to get tapped. Uh, which means you had to be careful in the order you played things. And, oh, well, if I'm going to play a creature, I might want to attack first before I play my creature. If I had something to say, I had a 2-2 flyer, that if I play my creature first, you could tap my flyer. I have to sort of know the order of things. And there, there are some interesting things there. Um, my comment to that, by the way, for people that like Whenever we change things and we make things easier for people to understand because they're more intuitive, sometimes in the change we take away options. Um, and I understand there are people there that just love having every option available to them and it's not a problem for them and they get it and they can read the card. And, um, and my answer is that there's a lot of decision-making that already goes in Magic. I believe that Magic has the ability to put decisions where they, you know, I, I would rather have the decision-making focus where it matters more and less, you know, th- there's a point where people just get overwhelmed, and I, I don't believe that magic, you know, I, I believe when we make some changes that lessen some things so it's more clear what's going on, that just means you have more ability to focus. I, I think magic has more decisions to make per game than most games have. A lot of decisions. Um, I have what I call the perfect game, which is, imagine you were playing, and you were playing in front of a two-way mirror, and the top ten pros in the world were sitting in the room watching you play, and every time you made a move, they either went thumbs up or thumbs down. You know, you made the right play or you made the wrong play. Um, how many games does a player play in their lifetime where the pro players would thumbs up every move they made, meaning no mistakes, you had a perfect game? Now, I'm not talking about mana screw games where you really didn't get a chance to play, but a game where you got your mana and, like, you had a real game. How many of those games did you play that, you know, that you never made a mistake? And my belief is that for the average player, they've never played a game like that. They've never played a perfect game. That there always was a game that there were decisions that they could have done differently that would have improved their odds. Even if they won, there's things they could have done that would have been the the optimal play that they didn't do. Um, 
And that's not even also getting into a lot of stuff Mike Turian talks about, that when you start getting really good, it's not even about what cards you play. It's about showing intent. Are you looking at things at different times? Are you giving clues to your opponent what you're doing and not doing? You know, part of playing really good at a high level is um, if you want your opponent to believe something, you have to act as if that thing were true. And so you have to take actions and do things that lead your opponent to believe things that might not be what is really the case because you want, you want them to act in a certain way. Likewise, you want to be able to read your opponent. When they look at something or think about something or have a pause, you want to read what that means so you can understand what they have. And the real good players are very, very good at reading the opponent so that they play around what the opponent has because, you know, you just pausing for a second go, wait a second, they go, oh, he's thinking about this, he must have that. Oh, if he has that, i got to play this way. Anyway, this was a really interesting card, by the way, um, in that um, I, I like the fact that this card sort of um, changed how the board state works and how things happen, and it really made you think about what order you wanted to play things, and it, it, this is a very neat card. Okay, next is Timber Watch Elf. Two and a green for a 1-2 elf. Tap, target creature gets plus X, plus X until end of turn. X is the number of elves in play. Not that you control, by the way, elves in play. So this... Um, this was one of the two most broken cards in Limited, I believe. Um, this was just kind of crazy. Like, like I talked about, sometimes you would play a card that's suboptimal just because it was the right creature type. This was the kind of deck where you did that. Did you have a one-drop or a two-drop or a three-drop that was an elf? That's all, that's all that mattered. You, you know, and Timberwatch Elves, I think, was common, I think. Um, I mean, I remember people had multiple Timberwatch Elves in their decks, and that's just crazy. Like, if I have a Timberwatch Elf, it's like, I'm just getting Elves out there, because if I ever get this Timberwatch Elf out, and you can't immediately deal with it, you are in deep, deep trouble. Um, uh, and that's an example of where, um, I think the set did a lot of fun. I think the design's pretty cool. Um, developmentally, we were still getting a handle on, I mean, one of the things I think about the development of Limited is, we were constantly learning. Uh, and this set, I think, made a lot of strides from sets before it, but it clearly left some room to, you know, um, there are some cards that were just really warped the limited environment. And I think we've gotten a lot better of being careful not to make comments that, like, right, you just get Timberwatch Elf out and, like, what are they going to do? It's really, really hard to deal with. Okay, next, Totem Speaker. Four and a green for a 3-3 three, three Elf Druid. Uh, whenever a beast enters the battlefield, gain three life. So before I talked about there was a goblin, there was a crossover between goblins and beasts. This is the crossover between elves and beasts. Um, so beasts were mostly a red and green thing. So one crossover is in red and one crossover is in green. Um, and one of the things, that, elves had this thing of mana generation. So sometimes what would happen is you have an elf deck. The early game was elf and the late game was um, beasts. Um, usually the way it worked is more of your deck was elves. You had a lot of elf synergy, but there were a few big beasts that the elves could help you get out. Um, and this is one of those cards that if you were playing beasts, sometimes was very valuable. Um, depending on the kind of deck you were doing. I mean, Elves had a couple different ways it could go. Next, Unstable Hulk. Hulk smash. One red red for a 2-2 Goblin Mutant. For morph 3RR, so 5 mana, it gets plus 6 plus 6 and trample, um, but you skip your next turn. Uh, so basically what happens is, it's a face down 2-2. Um, for 3 mana, you can turn into an 8-8 Trampler, but the cost of it isn't really the mana. Three mana is not that much. The cost of it is you give up a turn. Um, so th- this is definitely an interesting card. Um, one, of, Like I said, you can definitely see some influence here of red. Like, one of the things that we ebb and flow a little bit on red is red has this flavor of going all out, like, like 
all short-term, no long-term. And we're trying to get a balance between having Red do some things that have that feel, but making sure there's some gameplay so that Red has not just a speed, but also has a little bit of control elements. We're working hard on that. Um, red, in its very nature, wants to be all-in, and we want enough of that to get that flavor of Red. But we want to make sure there's some stuff in Red that if you want to play a more controlling deck with Red, that there's the ability to do that. Okay, next, Wall of Deceit. So Wall of Deceit is a 0-5 wall, costs 1 and a blue, so 2 mana. Um, for 3 mana, you can turn it face down, and it's more for a blue. Um, so this, this existed for a couple reasons. So one is, the idea is, I can play 3 mana, I can play a 2-2 two, a two, two creature, or for you know, 2 mana, I can play a 0-5 wall. Uh, I have the ability to go back and forth between them. So the idea is, if I need it as a defensive thing, it's defensive, 0-5 wall. If I want to attack with it, oh, well, for three mana, I can always turn it into a 2-2. Two, two. Um, and then for one mana, I, I can always turn it back into a 0-5. So, for example, um, let's say I take this, you see it's a 0-5, I turn it to a 2-2 two, two, and I attack with it. Really, really, it's kind of like a 2-5. As long as I have one blue mana open, I can do two damage to you, um, and then I, I mean, this is, sorry, I'm talking about how that card worked when we printed it. Um, back in damage on the stack day, so it's a little different here. Um, but back in the days, you could attack, do the two damage, and then you could turn it up, and it would have five toughness. So it was the kind of card where your opponent knew when you were attacking with it that it, all, it essentially had five toughness if you had a blue open. Um, now that's, okay, as a side note, the, the damage on the stack. Somehow I'm talking about all, all sorts of changes we made today. So damage on the stack, uh, the reason it was changed was, A, it, it never made any intuitive sense to people who who didn't understand the nuance of what it was, and just intuitively it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, we had a few things we would talk about how, uh, we would call them the that's lying parts of the game, where when you explain it to someone who didn't know, they go, that's, you're lying, that's not true, that doesn't make any sense. And we wanted to remove those from the game. The other thing that's very interesting, and this is a good example here, is I think the card is much more interesting that it's a 2-2 two, two that comes zero five. Not that I can, like, before it's like, it's a 2-2, two, two, for everything that matters, it's a 2 power creature, and for everything that matters to me of the one mana, it's a five toughness creature. So it's like, it's like I just have a two five. It's like, well, now I gotta decide. If I deck with a two two and you block with your two two, I'm like, what do I want? Do I want to kill your creature at the loss of my creature, or do I want to bounce and not kill either creature? That is a much more interesting decision that I just kill it and get to save it. You know, one of the things you want in a game is to make sure that decisions are interesting and that the player has to really weigh them. If you're always going to do something every time you do it, that's much less interesting for a game because, well, what's the point? What's the decision? There is no decision-making. There's an optimal way to play it. Always play it the optimal way. Okay, next. Warbreak Trumpeter. So Warbreak Trumpeter is a goblin for one red mana, uh, morph XXR, and you get X11 red goblin tokens when you turn it up. So this is definitely one of those ones where... Um, it's a one-drop goblin, so sometimes in goblin decks that you know, need to count goblins, you'll do that. Um, but most of the time, you'll play it face down. And then, you know, for three mana, I get a 1-1. One, one. For five mana, I get two 1-1s, one, you know, and, uh, and so on and so on. Um, it definitely allowed you... We talk about making later red cards. This is a good card that um, allows me to have a later game, you know. If I have this in play and then uh, it's, you know, turns nine, for example, all of a sudden, I can... Or, not turn nine, but if I have nine mana, all of a sudden I can have four one ones that could really change the later game. Um, one of the things also was um, uh, in this in a tribal set, token making takes on 
especially when you have count me's, uh, token making takes on extra a- a- value here, which is all of a sudden, let's say I want to do damage to you and I do damage based on goblins, you know, by using this, by, you know, for example, let's say I have my nine mana, all of a sudden I have five extra goblins in play. I have this guy and the four tokens he makes. Um, and so this not only got to make one ones, which could be very powerful, but in this environment, them being goblins was, was super, super valuable. Next, Weaver of Lies. Oh, I'm sorry. No, next is Warped Researcher. For you, for a 3-4 wizard mutant, uh, anyone who cycles, if anybody cycles, you or your opponent, this creature gains Flying and Shroud. Shroud is written out, but essentially Flying and Shroud. Um, so this was definitely, a, we wanted cards that cared about cycling happen. We had cards like Lightning Rift and uh, Astral Slide and Onslaught. This is another card. Um, this was more meant for limited, but the idea essentially is, as you cycle things, this creature can, you know, has value. Um, and that you can, um, it, this allows you to sort of uh, maybe prioritize putting some cycling things in your deck because, you know, you could cycle to either make this uh, have evasion or cycle to protect it, which is kind of cool. Next, Weaver of Lies, 5 blue blue for a 4-4 four, four beast. Uh, I think beast showed up in all the colors, may, maybe not white. Um, his beast was mostly red and green, but I think there was some beast in black and beast in blue. Anyway, for Morph for you, turn any number of Morph cards face down. So this is another card. So one of the things, actually, I didn't mention this with all of Deceit. One of the things that, I think it was blue-green, there's a deck that definitely cared about morphing and had cards that manipulated off morphing. So, for example, um, I just talked about um, Warp Researcher, which every time you cycled would gain flying. Well, blue also had some cards and stuff that cared about when things got morphed. Um, now, you could turn the face down because you could get the morph reveals, or sometimes there were a few cards that cared about when things were face down. Uh, like there's a green card that I talked about last time that got plus two plus two for every face down card. Well, for example, let's say I have this as a morph creature and I attack. Um, all of a sudden, I could put this face up, turn a whole bunch of things face down, which could be this one as well. And then my guy that might just be like a 4 4 or something all of a sudden becomes an 8 8 or a 10 10. Um, so one of the things we'd like to do whenever we're doing any sort of mechanic is make sure that there's some means to manipulate the mechanic. And Weaver Lies is that kind of card. Okay, next, White Knight, WW22 Knight, First Strike Protection from Black. Um, it's funny, I'm trying to think why White Knight went in here. It's interesting in that it wasn't really Knight Tribal, so the Tribal itself was not a huge thing. I think it just kind of fit in a lot of the swarms, um, that there were the soldier decks that were white weenie decks, and so it, it fit efficiently in there. Um, I also think at the time, what might have been going on was, it might be the time we made this set, the core set stopped doing protection. Here's my guess what, here's my guess what happened. The core set probably stopped doing protection, and the team liked White Knight and wanted White Knight in the environment. They thought it was good for the standard environment, but we couldn't put White Knight in the core set because of protection, so they were looking for a place to put it. That logically makes sense, because it doesn't, it's not a super smooth fit in the tribal thing. Next, Will Bender. Will Bender's one in a blue for a one-two wizard with morph one you, and when you morph it, you get to re- redirect a spell, which means you get to choose a new target. Um, so we definitely try to make one of the things about blue triggers was blue did a lot of sneaky things, um, counterspelling and redirecting and turning things face up and face down. That definitely the idea when you're playing blue morphs is that if they had mana open, shenanigans could happen if they had the ability to unmorph. And, and Will Bender was a very popular card. Um, uh, and, and the ability to move things really means that all of a sudden, you know, your opponent thinks they're doing something and you really could shift it. 
You know, they're going to kill the, your creature, not to kill their own creature. That really changes things significantly. So this Will Bender is a pretty cool card. Next is Windborn Muse. I talked about all this for last Muse. So this is the white Muse for three and a W, so four mana. It's a two-three spirit, and it says creatures cannot attack unless they pay two for each attacking creature. So there's a card in Tempest called Propaganda. It was in blue. Um, basically, this is propaganda. I think propaganda was three mana. This is two mana. Um, but also, it's in white. One of the things we realized is we really, when we were trying to figure out what needed to be where, we came to the conclusion that white was supposed to be the taxing color, and this really was a taxing effect. So instead of being a blue thing, it's now a white thing. And the idea is, hey, you want to do your thing you want to do? Well, just pay me my taxes. You, you got you to gotta pay the piper. And then white's the one who makes the rules, so sometimes white's rules work in white's favor. Next, Wirewood Channeler. Three in the green for a 2-2 elf. Tap at X mana of one color, where X is the number of elves. Uh, this is another, just like, it's not quite, not quite as good as Timberwatch Elf, but still none too shabby. Um, this was one of the cards that was made to allow the elf um, beast combos, because this allows you to get out bigger creatures. The elves didn't tend to be all that big, but the beasts were big. So what happened is, if you got a deck that used elves to get out a lot of bigger things, you'd stick some beasts in your deck, because um, the, the biggest beasts were in green. Next, Wirewood Hive Master. So Wirewood Hive Master is a two-mana card, one in a green, for a 1-1 elf. Uh, whenever a non-token elf enters the battlefield, you get a 1-1 one one, one green inset token. Um, now, you might ask why we have the... Often we have the rider so it doesn't feed itself. This makes insects, so it doesn't feed itself. Uh, but the reason to say non-token is there's a whole bunch of ways to get elf tokens that we, we thought was a little on the degenerate side. So often when we're doing shenanigans, counting things... Um, sometimes we do count tokens, sometimes we don't. Depends on the card. Um, but this is one of the times where we, we decided not. Uh, so this is definitely one of those cards that, um, we, the, as much as this was about tribal, there also was a very strong creature theme. I mean, obviously, Leeches was all creatures. So this was a card that sort of said, hey, I'm really good in a heavy creature deck. Um, not necessarily a tribal deck, not that it couldn't also be a tribal deck. Tribal decks have creatures in them. Um, but it really was trying to say, hey, you know, there's some breadth of what you can do, uh, and this card is more about, care about creatures rather than a specific tribe. Finally, my final card of the day, uh, final card of my podcast, and final card of Legions that I'm going to talk about is Withered Wretch. So Withered Wretch was a zombie cleric, black, black, for, uh, I think it's a 1-1. One, one. Zombie Cleric, I didn't write that down. Um, and it has the ability, one, exile card name and target graveyard. Um, so, what is this doing here? And the answer is, one of the things we tend to do is we make sure that sets, sometimes it's within the set and sometimes it's a set after. The previous year's block was Odyssey. It was all about playing in the graveyard. Well, we wanted people to have their fun, but now we're doing some different stuff, you know, and we wanted to give, usually we give you answers to the previous year's stuff to make sure that if it gets out of control, that there's some answers. And Withered Wretch was designed as an answer to deal with shenanigans from Graveyard. Turned out it's a really good card. Um, it's proved very, very valuable in formats where you need to deal with um, Graveyard stuff. It's cheap, uh, and it allows you a lot of control because you get a target when it gets removed. Um, and so Withered Wretch has become a pretty valuable go-to tool to protect people from Graveyard shenanigans. So, anyway, that, uh, many, many cards later, uh, ooh, I, I'm looking at my clock. I had, I had a long podcast today. What's good? I have a lot to talk about. Um, wasn't even raining today, just lots of traffic. Um, anyway, uh, that, my friends, is Legion. So, Legion's, 
like I said, I, I mentioned this briefly. The thing about Legions was, at the time, it was much derided by most of the experienced players because the number of constructed cards was a little lower than average. But just the gimmick of all creatures played really well. And like I said, for many, many years, Legions was the best-selling small set of all time. And it was very, very telling to us because the vocal, the vocal, um, I guess vocal minority on the internet, the, the people that were the loudest with their voice really, really did not like Legions. were very vocally against it. But then we'd look and we'd see and it, it kept selling so well. Uh, and it was one of the early things that made us realize that there was a portion of the audience, like I said, we called them the Invisibles at the time, that we didn't understand. And Legions really was something that opened our eyes and said, there's a lot of people playing Magic. And you have to, we had to be aware of who all the people are. We want to make every, you know, our goal is to make every player happy. Um, now, obviously, the stuff Legions did that didn't make the pros happy. Um, I, I think the biggest reason was they just needed more constructed cards. And that's something, obviously, we constantly work on to make sure that every set has stuff that, that affects and means something constructed. And Eric and his team are working really hard to make sure that happens. Anyway, that, my friends, is all there is to say about Legion. So, uh, I parked my car. And we all know what that means. That means this is the end of my drive to work. So it's time for me to be going and making magic. Talk to you guys next time.